invite you to turn to John's Gospel, chapter 4. There is a decided difference in his dialogue, in the Lord's dialogue, with the Samaritan woman at the well. We started last week where it was living water, and this week the title of the series, um, it will be a series, because there's quite a bit that happens from here going forward with regard to the Lord's explanation or reference to true, what is constitutes true worship. And so we're going to look at verse 16 through 30 in the series. This morning, we're just, all we'll be able to uh, handle is verse 16 through 18. So as you remember, our Lord has moved north, best estimations about 70 miles north to where it's uh, pretty much expected to be the place where Sychar was in Samaria. There's a well there, and he's met with a Samaritan woman there. Now, this text that we have, this particular passage has a wonderful uh, juxtaposing of both the humanity and the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen much of his deity. We see his humanity as well. But we see him as a wearied traveler. They travel on foot for the most part. It's 70 miles through the mountains. It's hot. It's midday, the sixth hour. And so it's noon. High noon, and typically nobody is fetching water at that time. This woman comes to fetch water, and our Lord is sitting by the well resting, and he asks her to give him a drink. And that's quite unusual, I'm sure completely unexpected on her part, because this is, after all, Samaria, a a Jewish man, a respected Jewish man, Uh, does not typically go into Samaria. The Samaritans, because they were a mixed breed, a mixed race, mixed with, ever since the conquering from the Assyrian army that conquered northern, the what was uh, uh, the northern part of Israel in 722 B.C. under Sennacherib, the Assyrian king Sennacherib, uh, they got mixed together with Babylonians and a number of different races intermixed with the Jewish people that lived up there. And so they were referred to, actually, um, not very kindly, as dogs. They considered them less than human. They didn't speak to them. They didn't look at them. They tried to, they would actually go to great pains to travel around Samaria, either by the coast of the Mediterranean or across the Jordan and go north that way. Anything but to be found in Samaria. So there's some serious racism, some serious xenophobia. There's all kinds of bad stuff going on with those that were, uh, had held that position. But that's not Jesus. Jesus isn't that way. He's the Jewish God man who has come by divine appointment in the providence of God to come to this well. But there's very human reasons why he's there. He's tired. He's wearied, as the text says, and he's thirsty. And so he asks for a drink. But verse 26, when we get there, we'll have his deity fully emerging with the Samaritan woman. So there's a lot in this dialogue with this Samaritan woman. We've already seen from last week. We're going to pick it up. We're going to overlap a little bit, and we're going to pick up at verse 13, reading together verse 13 of chapter 4 down through verse 
18. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go home and call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Father, we ask for your help at this time. We experienced a very powerful interaction with Nicodemus prior to this, who couldn't be more different than this Samaritan woman who has gone from man to man, now interacting with Jesus. So we need your help, because we know nothing is random, nothing is by chance, if that were actually a thing. We know, Lord, that this is a divine appointment, and we're left with the record that is an eternal record of these two interactions. So help us to remember what points are made by our Lord in this text that we too, O Lord, could learn together with Nicodemus and together with this Samaritan woman. This we ask for your glory's sake. Amen. So, in this segment of the story, we're looking at him unpacking what constitutes true worship, and he's making that clear as he goes along, but he does that in his well-mannered way. He does it in a very respectful way, a gentle way. He is being very uh, measured with her, and you can almost picture him there, but it's a crucial term for us to understand because that constitutes or it's supposed to constitute our lives. We like to think in boxes. It's easier for us to manage. It's easier for us to compose things. We think sequentially. We can't think of all things all the time. Some women perhaps can. I can't. But This is something that should actually characterize who we are. It's not just an activity. It should define us. Another word for a Christian believer should be a worshiper. So we're going to look at what this means. We're going to we're going to start at this place at the place where we should start in Genesis where we learn and can see that humans are created as worshipful beings. We're going to worship something or some things or someone we're going to we have we're given worshipful hearts our hearts wrap around things that we value so that's the place to start we're designed by our creator god to esteem him with the greatest of all value and in that sense that sort of sets the the tenor and tone of our whole life. It definitely establishes our character. It, It settles everything coming out of our mouths should be put through that grid. We are worshipful people. 
We are people who prior to Christ and those who have come to Christ later in life understand this well, they worshiped other things prior to knowing Christ. That's the Samaritan woman. He's going to be explaining to her this concept. He's, they're going to be, it's going to become clear to her, we believe, at some point as we get further in the text. The text is actually quite long, but eventually we see her getting through. But this, this, the reason I broke the text up from last week to this week at this verse is because something changes in not only how Jesus is speaking to her, but from there it changes her tone as well. And we're going to see why here in a minute. So, but first of all, what is worship? Worship just has to do with worth. That's the root word. That's what it comes from. It has to do with worth. It's, a, it's our estimation of the relative value of things in our lives. Some things or, or someone uh, we, can, we can worship, we can esteem with most value the places we go. We can esteem with great value the people that we love. We can esteem with great value the things that we do in terms of our careers or or our path or our talents, things like that. There's a lot of musicians, of course, in the Nashville metro area. So that can be something that has a higher value than someone like me who's not very gifted musically. So it's, 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 a, it's sort of a, a hierarchy of values that you establish. And you establish it day to day, really, depending on what is going on that day, depending on what comes into your life that day, uh, according to what you're planning to do. All of those things come into play that change the the sort of uh, 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 the makeup of your worshipful heart. But just know that by design, you're born with one. You can't escape it. And, and here's the thing. We're fallen. So the things that we tend to value most are earthbound. They're, they're part of the created, the fallen creation. So our hearts crave things and they look for things that we esteem as value. We, we apprise things as having great value. That's essentially what we do, our worth. And that's the very thing that we worship. So we're apprising things. We're Thinking about things, the things we think about most form affections in our heart. The more we think about them, the more we have affection for them, and the more we begin to wrap our heart around them. And that's the thing, whatever that is, that thing or that person is what we worship, regardless of what we say. We have to not compartmentalize that word worship. We shouldn't think in terms of we're here today to what? Worship. It, we can tend to think like the Samaritan woman, can't we? Well, we worship on Mount Gerizim, and we know that you Jews uh, worship in Jerusalem. It's not locational. He's going to get that through to her, but it's going to take nothing less than the God-man to be able to open her a heart up to what the issue is in her life. So for the Christian, we are to hold, obviously, in highest esteem or highest value, our God. We value Him the most. That sets the agenda. My calendar's set. What I'm doing with my life and what I use my time for is fixed. It belongs to Him. We're redeemed creatures, yeah, Christians. And so it belongs 
not to me. It belongs to him who possesses it. So these are things that worshipful creatures should consider as they're running the concourse of their life. So because we worship the creator God, he should have the greatest of our love, the greatest of our honor, the greatest of our adoration, the greatest of our respect, the greatest of our reverence, the greatest of our disposable resources that he gave us, the temporary resources, temp, T-E-M-P, as that acrostic, time, energy, money, and possessions. All of those belong to him for, for my management or our stewardship. Everything in the Christian life is a stewardship because you and I didn't create anything. We can't create ex nihilo. Even artists take things that already exist and recompose them, and they think that that's their creation, right? <laughs> exactly. It all comes from something. That's where we see trends. We see trends recycled through the years in terms of the created, uh, creative media. So the face, place to start, of course, is Exodus, Exodus 20, verse 2, 3, and 5, and 6. He makes it very clear there. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods beside me. No other gods. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And I'll remind you again, the Bible's use of the term hate just means love less. Doesn't, not the way we use it. We hang all kinds of nastiness on that word. And when the Bible speaks of hate, when the Bible says you're not loving me, it means you're loving me less than you should. He sees our heart. He knows what we value most. He knows what's getting the lion's share of our time, energy, money, possessions, the, the, the lion's share of, of our, the things we go after in life, the things we do with ourselves, all of those he knows. And so when that gets upside down, that's how the Bible uses the term hate. You're not serving me anymore. You're not obeying me anymore. You don't seek me anymore. Have you lost your first love? Where is your devoted heart? Where is your affection? What drives you? Because affection surely will. It just That's not the point. That's not the issue. The issue is, what is my affection wrapped around? That's important. So he says, it's going to be visited on those who love me less and love other things more. That's the gods with the small g. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Those two things are always together because that's how we show that we love him. We're glad to keep his commandments as Jesus defined it in John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, you know the rest of it. You will. You will. John Frame said another way to look at the first commandment is to say that it's all about worship. When people meet in the Bible, they bow down. <laughs> they are moved to worship, end quote. So you think of Moses at Sinai. Take those sandals off. You're on holy ground. I'm going to pass by you. Perhaps if he stayed too long, he'd be burned up. You're just going to see the backside of me. 
This is a holy God. And he's to be reverenced that way. He's not different when he shows up as kind and patient and gentle Jesus. If you think that, you're going to be surprised when he comes back. You think of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 where the heavens are opened up and God is there. The first thing that comes to Isaiah's mind is, woe is me, woe is me, I am undone. Why? Because I'm a man of unclean lips. I live with a people that are unclean. How did, why, did that, why was that the first thing in his mind? Because he's a holy, holy God. So people that encounter God bow down. They fall down in some cases. Jesus walked on water. What did those in the boat do? Those in the boat, when they saw him walking on water and they saw him calm the weather, what did they do? By the way, that's Matthew 14, 33. It says that those in the boat worshipped him. If you see somebody you know walking on the water, that's probably not the thing that's going to come to your mind. You're going to be like, wow, dude, how'd you do that? I want to do that. That's what Peter's thinking. Show me how. (laughs) So there you have it. You have John, when he was brought up to heaven in the presence of the Lord, who fell down like a dead man. So are we content that we are proper worshipers? Are we content with the level of value, our evaluation of God, uh, of, of our estimation of him? Do we find it helpful to when we study the Bible and the deeper we go in the Bible and the more he emerges, the more worshipful our heart becomes toward him. There's places that that's not being done. Of course, every church, all of us, including us, hope that what we render to the Lord is pleasing to him. Are our hearts not preoccupied with other things that our hearts are wrapped around during the week? Are they wide open to the things of the Lord and hearing the Lord and so on? That's the thing. Because we know in Scripture, and I'll read a few of these, we know in Scripture that there's places where what the Bible defines as unacceptable worship are going on. I like something MacArthur said at this point. He said this, Worship services in many churches today are like a merry-go-round. You drop a token in the collection box, it's good for a ride. There's music and lots of motion up and down. The ride is carefully timed and seldom varies in length. Lots of good feelings are generated. And it is the one ride you can be sure will never be the least bit threatening or challenging. But though you spend the whole time feeling as if you were moving forward, you get off exactly where you got on, end quote. You're not growing. Intention for God's redemption is reclamation. He's after reclaiming a soul that was lost because of our sin. There's the trajectory, we can see it in Hebrews and other places too, is that we are growing. We're not under the milk of the word anymore. We're eating red meat. We're growing. We're looking more like Christ. That's the agenda he has. But it's 
my preferences that can get in the way of that. I know the length of sermon I want to listen to. I know the kind of songs I want to sing. I know the things that I, I really would rather not hear from the preacher because that, you know, it's just either going to make me tired because I'm indifferent or it's going to offend me. And then he's going to know it. He, he'll know it by the look on my face. Unacceptable worship is offered to those who do not truly know God, love God, nor obey God. That's where we start. It's unacceptable worship. If we don't truly know God, if we don't truly love Him or obey Him. We have the example in Leviticus 10, 1 to 3 with Nadab and Abihu, right? You're all familiar with this story. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, Leviticus 10, 1 to 3. Each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded is a key, I believe there. What are you doing? You're doing things that I didn't call you to. Who's it intended to please? Is it important that you have a certain experience? We had a powerful experience in church today. God, the the Spirit was just really there. How do you know? I'm sure there's some kind of Spirit because you seem really moved. I'm not questioning your sincerity at all. How do you know where it's coming from? What What does it tend toward? What does it result in? Because we know from Scripture what God's after, if we care to look. So it's something he had not commanded them, and the fire came out from the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Is that God gone? I mean, we're in the New Testament now. He's gone, right? Now we have Jesus, so we don't really have to worry about that kind of stuff. That's Old Testament stuff. Don't get legalistic. Come on. Unauthorized. NAS has strange fire. The New King James says profane. Profane, which is the etymology of that is pro is before, and the fane was the chapel, so it's before the chapel. It's, it's outside. It's in the fallen world is where, you're, where what you just did, whatever it was. I believe it doesn't include the details in the text because we would just want to fix that part, wouldn't we? There's something else that's wrong when they dab and Abihu, and there's speculations. All them, they, they could have been drunk. What, whatever might seem plausible, that's not the issue. And I believe that it's deliberate that the details of what they did wrong is left out. Because of where true worship should come from. Think about that. If it's going to be acceptable to him. You remember Saul? There's another example. 1 Samuel 13, 8 to 14. So Saul waited seven days. He was waiting for Samuel to come to give the offering. You're familiar with the story. The time appointed by Samuel. So Samuel said, in seven days I will be there. He's not there. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. He got nervous because he's not here. The priest is not here and things are starting, you know, the wheels are coming off the wagon. Things are starting to, to come unraveled. I'd better do something about it. Verse 9, so Saul said, bring the burnt offering over uh, here to me and the peace offerings. 
And he offered the burnt offerings. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offerings, behold, Samuel came. Was he just late or was that intentional providence? (laughs) And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. By the way, just a little sidebar. What did that expose in Saul? (laughs) A lot. Let's look further. Verse 11. Samuel said, what have you done? What have you done? And Saul said, now listen to this carefully. This is the way Saul thinks. When I saw, underline when I saw, when I saw the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. He's got this all figured out. How doesn't he bless his heart? <laughs> He's a pragmatist. This can't possibly work out because we were supposed to... This isn't going to end well because we were supposed to give the offering. So I must be the one that's... Do we think like that sometimes? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But, but you crossed a line here, Saul. You, you crossed a line. Suddenly, he's the omniscient one. He's got it figured out. All the bad things will happen if he doesn't take charge. So, he says, I have sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself. I don't think he had to force himself very hard, frankly, and offered the burnt offering. In other words, I you know, kind of did it against my will. I didn't want to have to do it, but... Samuel wasn't here. What are you going to do? And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. Just like that. Mm Mm-hmm. Just like if he tells somebody, speak to the rock, don't hit it twice with a stick. Moses. I, I, had, I struggled for a long time as a believer. It seems so harsh. All that comes from a small estimation of who God is. My valuation of God shrinks with my estimation of him. You see? And then things like this can happen. The Lord, he goes on to say, Samuel, the Lord has sought out a man after his own what? Ah, we're getting the clue now, aren't we? And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Stick with what I reveal, the things that I find acceptable and the things that I don't. And those things issue forth from your heart. That's the key. There's a number of places. I'm not going to go through them all. We don't have enough time. But Malachi 1, 6 to 13, that's where they're offering to God their offerings. He's, he's, he's rebuking them for offering the lame and the blind of their flocks, the leftovers. Verse 10 summarizes it. The Lord says, I will not accept an offering from your hand. In another part of that passage, he says, offer that blind and lame stuff to your governor and see how he takes it. 
They're offering these things to God. What do I give him? What do you give him? Leftovers? Discretionary time, discretionary money, discretionary possessions, what I can do without. If it doesn't inconvenience me, that's what I give him. Not my prime time, not my prime energy, not that much of my finances. I'll, now I'm thinking like Saul, right? This, that will happen. Can you imagine if I gave away this, my time, my whatever it is? And we're tested all the time, aren't we? Amos 5, 21 to 23. I hate, I despise your feasts. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. There's the word again. So clearly in Scripture, it's made clear there are things that are acceptable to God in terms of worship and things that are unacceptable. The peace offerings of your fatted animal, I, won't, I will not look up upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. Don't sing me your songs. Your heart is not with me. Be quiet. Keep that to yourself. Instead of desiring to have other people think, well, of you that you're a pious person here offering your songs and offering all of these things when your heart is far from him. Take away from the, the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. So Jesus pointed out when he came along to the Pharisees, so this moves forward into the New Testament in Matthew 15, 7 to 9. You hypocrites. You remember what he said? Well, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart, that's it. That's the key. Their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, therefore. They call it worship. They're at the temple. They're making their offerings. They have their robes. They have their phylacteries. They have their tassels. They have all of these things for show, but their heart is vacant. It's, a, it's an empty lot. It's, a, it's an empty tomb, actually, filled with dead men's bones, he says in another place. So God alone is to be venerated and revered. That's the key. All of this explanation so that we understand going forward in this series where Jesus is explaining perhaps one arguable, arguably one of the, if not the most important word in the New Testament. Worship. Worship. That's what he wants back. Because after our first parents fell in the garden, we worship whom? Ourselves. You can say it because we're all in the boat together. We worship ourselves. The things I plan tomorrow and the next day typically are things that suit me, yeah? Or am I alone? I'll twist in the wind for you, friends. Be glad to. It's true. We're to revere him as the all-knowing God, the omniscient God, the all-ever-present God, the omnipresent God, El Olam. He is the all-seeing God, the El Roi. He is Adonai. He is El Shaddai, the almighty, all-powerful, unlimited in his power, creator God. The more we lift him up, 
the greater suited are we to say, I am, in fact, worshiping the great I am. It's a heart filled with praise and adoration and obedience. So Christians are redeemed for the purpose of worshiping God. Are we redeemed so that we might have our sins forgiven and so that we might have eternal life? Well, of, well, of course. But primarily, we are redeemed for the purpose of a pure-hearted worship of the God who we've rejected because of our sin. John 4.23, when we get there, true worshipers, Jesus is telling now the Samaritan woman, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Deuteronomy, all the way back at Deuteronomy 26, 8 to 11. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Now you know that's a metaphor for you and I being set free from what are the sins that captive, held us captive, right? Led us into the land of... So think of that metaphor while you listen to this, what God dealt with with Israel. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with the great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. He brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me, and you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord God has given you and to your house. That's to be our lives. That's to characterize our lives. This gratitude. It's the word that separates us from the unbeliever in Romans 1. Neither were they thankful, right? But we're to be marked by gratitude. We're thankful people. And out of that creates a worshipful heart, a platform for true worship. I am so utterly grateful that he saved my life. I have gratitude that spurs me on. Gratitude and love. And what that does is it sets the stage for a boiler room, if you will, that's creating this cauldron of love for Jesus Christ that's getting hotter and hotter all the time that spurs me on so that when I make my decisions throughout my day and throughout my week, they're in that trajectory because my heart is set right. It's a worshipful heart. But it has to be tended to, doesn't it? Tozer put it this way, we are saved to worship God. I don't know that we think about it that way very much, but I get the point, don't you? We're actually saved to worship God. He goes on, all that Christ has done for us in the past and all that he is doing now leads to this one end, end quote. Am I worshiping him? Is my worship acceptable to him? If not, it's vain worship. That's what Jesus said. In vain do you worship me, borrowing from Isaiah. It hasn't changed, in other words. Speaking of Isaiah, Isaiah 43, 7 and verse 21. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. We, we tend to get myopic with the purposes for which we were redeemed, don't we? We tend to think this, and we should. I mean, we should be grateful for the fact that we're saved, the fact that he saved our lives and that we'll have eternal life with him in glory, in perfection. 
Of course. But he created you and I for his glory. And that's not happening unless we have worshipful hearts. He's about to show her what she worships. That's why I can't get past two, three verses, 16 through 18. Verse 21 of Isaiah 43, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. We have to come off of this thinking of ourselves, and it's automatic because I have to set the alarm for tomorrow for what I need to do. So we have to make sure we're getting our hearts right, that our hearts are in the right place. Okay, in my evaluating system, do I have the Lord my God far and away more important than anyone or anything? And you know how you can tell if you're being challenged in that area? He'll take something important away from you. Will you love me then, he could say? Or did you wrap your heart around that person or that job or that possession, that house, that reputation, that power you used to have, your youth? Fill in the blanks. Our hearts are wandering idolaters looking everywhere in the horizontal creation to try to satisfy something that only God can satisfy. You see how we're getting closer to the woman at the well? Paul put it this way when he was talking to Governor Felix, remember, making his case in Acts 24, verse 14. But this I confess to you. Okay, so, so he's, this is another way of saying, okay, all of those things that are being argued right now, this I can tell you of a certainty. Okay, here it is. What is it? That according to the way, that was their word for according to Christianity, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing, that's the key word, everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. They're saying that I disregard the law of Moses, that I disregard the, the, the God of our fathers. That's not true. They're just denying that he has sent his Messiah. And by the grace of God, I recognize who he is. And I worship him, just like the fishermen, the plain blue-collar fishermen, when they saw Jesus, they worshiped him because he was walking on water. And he calmed the sea. Surely this must be the Son of God. Right response. First Peter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of that. And when you see this word that, this is why, this is the purpose there, you're, you're chosen to be a royal priesthood and holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
We proclaim his excellencies. We proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. We proclaim all that he's done. We need to say with the Samaritan woman, come see a man. He told me everything about myself. How did he know those things? How did he splay this open and read me like a book? He knew me better than I knew myself. He told me things about me that I had long suppressed and forgot and wanted to. But he did it with patience and with kindness and gentleness. The gentle ways of our Lord. But he did not hold back what needed to be said about me. Right? So the fact is, here it is in a statement, those who see God will worship God. Once you see him, you will. And for the unbeliever who continues to deny, one day they will see him and they will fall down under their own condemnation. And that is absolutely terrifying. Or it should be. So that it prompts us to pray for them. People we care about. And that's the destiny they're facing right now. You need to see him. You need to see him in me. I have to start with me on behalf of the unbelievers that I love. I have to start with me, my heart. Because if my heart is worshipful, if my heart is pure, if my heart is made right, if I'm pursuing this, this, this desire of the Lord, this work of the Holy Spirit to sanctify me or make me pure and holy, if I, my heart is, is holy and worshipful, they're not going to see me anymore. Not the old me. They're going to see Christ. Something of the Christ they'll see. And when they see him, they stop like the Samaritan woman who's intrigued. Remember her background. We're going to go into that in a minute. She's changing now. She's changing. Go get your husband. Wait, who is this that I'm talking to? Remember, she was jaded. You remember last week when we... He first encountered her, and she had this sarcasm in her voice, and you can understand that. She's ostracized from her community. There's nobody else out there at noon drawing water. She's doing it because nobody else is out there at that time. They despise her. They've marginalized her. They've stigmatized her. It's terrible what they've done. And so you can understand her, her tone with Jesus, right? What are you asking me to draw water for you? You're a Jew. They don't talk to Samaritans. They don't talk to Samaritan women. And don't you see me here alone at this well? You know why I'm here alone. There's nobody else here. They draw water in the morning or at night when it's cool out. I'm here by myself for a reason. And I think maybe this, maybe this man, this Jewish man, knows something. Go get your husband. He's not my husband. We're just about there. So those who see God will worship God. Well, who will see God? You remember the Sermon on the Mount? Chapter 5, verse 8. All those blessed, blessed, blessed. Blessed are the what? For they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart. Pure. We're seeking purity. We're seeking holiness because I want to see him. 
I've seen enough of me. I've seen enough of this world, haven't you? I want to see him. The psalmist talks about the beauty of his holiness. I, I want to see as much of that as he's, he's going to peel back and let me see. And when you do, you worship. Because his value just shot through the roof, right? When, when Jesus shows up as the God-man and the Father allows a revelation for them to see who he is, like in Matthew 16 when he did that for Peter, remember? Who do you say that I am? Well, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Wow, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood didn't... You didn't get that from a person. You certainly didn't get it from yourself, the Father in heaven must have revealed that to you. So that's what's got to happen for the Samaritan woman too. But look at who she's talking to. So blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's why First Peter, you can see that uh, reference there, First Peter 1, 15 to 16. We were called to it with a holy calling. Therefore, be holy because he is holy, right? That's what it says there. That's what he's after in this reclamation project. That's what the Holy Spirit does by increments. He's slowly sanctifying us from glory to glory, 2 Corinthians 3.18, right? From glory to glory into the likeness of Christ by the Spirit. The Spirit is doing this work. He is called the Holy Spirit for a reason. Hebrews 12.14, Strive therefore for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So the Samaritan woman obviously has an impure heart that prevents her from seeing the true and living God. So she's not working, worshiping him. Sorry, man, but with all due respect, you're, you're not worshiping. What you're doing on Mount Gerizim is vain to the Lord. If you were you down in Jerusalem and went to the real temple on the mount, you'd, your worship would still be what? In vain. You're impure. But that doesn't stumble Christ. He came for impure people like me. That's, that's exactly why he came. When he was, when he was in a room, when he was, in, when he was partying with, with prostitutes and tax gatherers, those are my people. Healthy people don't need a physician. Sick people do, right? That's the point. So she's, she can't, she's, She's unable to worship him properly because she can't see him. She doesn't know him. Therefore, she has no desire to worship him as the true God. So in verse 15, she asks Jesus, Sir, give me this water. And as I said, things change here because the great physician is going to go to work. Remember he said, you know, if... If you would have asked, you'd have received the gift. If you'd have known who you were talking to. Well, remember she asked. Sir, give me this water. Okay, hold on to your hat. Here we go. So he goes to work on her heart. Jesus said to her, call your husband and come here. His words are direct and personal and plain spoken. That's not as... That may be acceptable to God, but to some people it's not acceptable. His objective is to get her to acknowledge her sinful condition, right? That's necessary. A necessary first step in any gospel presentation. 
they have to see their need. We all want free stuff where we don't have to change our life at all. (laughs) Go on doing the things we like to do, right? No, he, he has to start here. He has to start here. Living water not only quenches a thirsty heart, it also cleanses a soiled one. That's what she needs. She needs both forgiveness forensically, judicially, and she needs washing. That's the living water. That's what it does. It wells up inside, he told her, remember? She needs to be cleansed. How beautiful, how glorious is this? This is what you need, he says. But is that going to mean anything to her until, and this is the hard part, she understands her sin? Go get your husband. He knows exactly what he's doing. This is masterful, by the way, in terms of evangelism. No one is eternally grateful for a doctor until they learn that their illness is terminal, right? Suddenly they're very grateful, but they have to first be told. An accurate diagnosis has to be given first before an effective cure can be administered. J.C. Ryle said, Till men and women are brought to feel their sinfulness and need, no real good is ever done to their souls. Till a sinner sees himself as God sees him, he will continue careless and unmoved. You can't just come for the free stuff. Verse 17, the woman answered him. "Mm." Think through what this tone would be this point because things have changed but not entirely yet I have no husband suspecting that I think he knows that how did he find that out did he talk to somebody I think he this man is special she's about to say I suspect you're a prophet but we're not going to go there yet we're getting ahead of ourselves but she'll get he'll get her there it's masterful how he does it Go get your husband. That's all he said. I don't have a husband. Now your point? What's your point? Jesus said to her, and I would suggest to you in a very gentle, sweet-toned way. He doesn't wag his finger and say, and rebuke her. That's right. Let's talk about your sin. He commends her. For her truthfulness. He doesn't commend her sin, but he commends her for her truthfulness. How about being a little bit winsome when we present Christ, yeah? How about let's do that? How about, because that's how he was. He used his mind. He crafted words. He he didn't mind going down into the muck of people's lives. The sewer pit that was my life. He descended down in willingly. Something beautiful and something glorious is here. I'm almost embarrassed. No, I'm I'm humbled. You're right in saying I have no husband. But he doesn't hold the truth back, does he? Verse 18, for you have had five 
husbands. He doesn't stop there either. And the one you are now, you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Let's go with that. Think about it. That generated a whole drop-down window of a whole host of questions that, in my mind as I'm looking at that exchange right there. By the way, this is proof that cohabitation does not constitute marriage. The man you live with is not your husband. She doesn't speak up and say, well, common law marriage, right? Marriage is a covenant, a public covenant, a committed covenant between a man and a wife before a holy God. That's marriage. So it's not likely, if you think about it just logically, reasonably, it's not likely that all five of these fellas died. She's not been widowed five times. I mean, and it made me, it reminded me of, so she's probably divorced. Well, divorces were commonplace back then because God in the Mosaic Law in chapter 24 of Deuteronomy verse 1 and following, he, he doesn't commend or command divorce, but he regulates it. Okay, because you guys are going to get divorced. He's saying, this is how you do it. This is when you do it. And they took license with that. So they were getting divorced all the time. They didn't like what their wife did or whatever. Dismissed her for... Verse 1 uses the word for some indecency. Another translation says for some uncleanness. So I think Jesus is making it clear that she's an adulterous woman. That she's unfaithful. But I ask myself, why? There's always a why question there. We don't just write it off there with our condemnations. Why? Why are you like that, do you suppose? But he treats her with kindness and respect. This is commendable. She's obviously done with marriage now, but not men. Right? Why? Was she looking for, in the the institution of marriage, was she looking for security? That'd be a fair assessment to make, wouldn't it? Was she looking for security? Was marriage supposed to supply her with all of her wants and needs? Was it supposed to fulfill all of her hopes and dreams? And then it turned out to be another sinner. (laughs) That's the problem with men, right? They're sinners. You can say amen, ladies. Except for you. Was marriage going to give her the love and the attention, the acceptance, the approval, the affection she longed for? Didn't happen, number one. Didn't happen, number two. Didn't happen. They just keep sending me on my way. Well, and maybe, for good reason, maybe, given her track record and what she's doing right now, there was adultery going on. Who, Who knows? It's plausible, though, isn't it? After the fifth try, she finally gives up on marriage, but not on clinging to men immorally. Why? 
She's giving up on marriage. Why does she still crave companionship with a man? Why? What drives her? What's going on there? Is she satisfied with this quid pro quo arrangement with the man she's living with? Is that satisfying to her? No, she knows something's wrong with that because it's most dissatisfying and she feels dirty. She doesn't know why, though. He does. Jesus does. He knows. This is at the cost of her reputation at the, and the infection of self-condemnation and the ostr- being ostracized from her community, being stigmatized, all the rest of it, but she still keeps doing it. Why? Why do we do things like that? Why do we re- go after the things that we go after? Now we're starting to understand how the fallen heart works. He's trying to show her that. Here's what's got to happen. So the Samaritan woman is an idolater. The Samaritan woman worships who? Herself. She wouldn't put it that way. She turns to the, the religious activities that she, that she performs at Mount Gerizim, and she's going to try to run through some of those things to put in the plus column. That's what we do, hoping God graves on a, grades on a curve, right? We, we're looking at the things that I'm doing. This was very religious, and that's very religious. You've got something wrong with your heart, dear lady. There's something wrong there. You have a craving there, and it's never satisfying. That's why he said to her at the well, if you drink of this water, what? You're going to thirst again, yeah? Why? Because only the God-man can quench that thirst. And there he is, sitting at the well. (laughs) Wow. Acceptable worship comes from a pure and obedient heart. Psalm 24, 3-4, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, Jesus, when he healed the blind man in John 9, he says, We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God, worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Psalm 73, verse 1, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So this is his point to her. First Chronicles 29:17 This is King David's prayer with the whole assembly there. I know my God that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart I have freely offered all these things and now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. This is a a heart condition, not a religious practice. It's the condition of your heart. It's the true assessment of your heart, what you value the most, what you're spending your life for. Draw near to God and He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Let's look at Hebrews 9.14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will he purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That's what he wants to do. That's what he intends to do for her. 
Psalm 18, verse, 20, verse 26, With the purified you show yourself pure. Jesus is offering her something that the prophet Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 54. This is a prophecy regarding the spiritual glory that's anticipated by the suffering servant when he comes. And by the way, he's sitting at the well. Verse 4, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth. Oh, sweet glory. What? And the reproach of your widowhood. What it means by widowhood there is abandonment. You've been abandoned by God, by the course and manner of your life, by the condition of your heart. There was a reproach there because of how you're living. That's what he's pointing out to this, letting the Samaritan woman discover herself, which is far more effective than just judging her. The reproach of your widowhood, you will remember no more. And here it is, verse 5. For your maker is your husband. What did this mean to her? This is him sitting there with her. Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. I'm your husband. I am pure and holy. I will satisfy you. I will never leave you or forsake you. I am Jehovah Jireh. I will provide for you. I will protect you. I am the Lord God of hosts. You're mine. We're his possession. How secure is that? How much better does this good news need to get for this Samaritan woman? She's talking to him. In Jesus Christ, the search, the longing, the impurity, all of that, the condemnation is over for the Samaritan woman coming to Christ. No longer is she going to crave the things that she knows in her heart are wrong. Otherwise, she wouldn't be all alone at the well. She knows full well what she's doing is it's wrong, it's empty. No longer is she going to suffer the humiliation, the stigma of the community, the stares, the degradation. It's over. With Jesus, she's at peace with God, fully satisfied and eternally loved by him. Hosea 2, 19 and 20, and we wrap it up this morning. Be encouraged by this. Not only is this Holy God, Redeemer God, our husband. But Hosea 2, 19 and 20 says, And I will betroth you to me forever. Five men gave her the boot. 
She probably got used to it. Is that not sad? I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. You can't know him if you don't see him. If you see him, you'll worship him. No more craving, no more sadness. No more loneliness, no more fear. The Lord of hosts, the Holy One of Israel, is your husband. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. What hope this gives us. I doubt there's anyone within the sound of my voice that cannot identify with this sad, beleaguered woman at the well. We've all been at the well. I pray for those, Lord, especially that have not gotten to the well, that have not met the Lord Jesus Christ, that are not reconciled with God, that have not been forgiven and cleansed of their sin. Bring them now, O Lord. Reveal yourself to them now through this preaching of your word. Save their souls. This we ask for your glory's sake. Amen.